Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 29th, 2021, a couple of days away from the new year. We all have new year resolutions. I'm guessing, actually, I'm certain we all have New Year resolutions. And I'm guessing that many of your resolutions concern online privacy. We're always worried about online privacy, especially at the beginning and end of years. It's always one of those things we say, well, we're going we're gonna to tighten up on our online privacy. We're not going to reveal who we are. We're going to stop using platforms like Facebook and Google. And my sense is usually like most um, New Year's resolutions, they kind of go away on about January the 5th when we realize that it's a little bit more complicated. We're going to be talking today about online privacy, and it's the right time of the year. Uh, Looking at the headlines, um, one from the New Scientist, the the British Scientific Magazine, very good magazine, asks whether 2022 will be the year we start taking online privacy seriously. I wonder, given what I just said, why it should be 2022 as opposed to 2021 or 2020 or 2023 for that matter. Online privacy is always kind of in the news, but often in a very secondary way. Uh, Headline today was about the Alphabet CEO. Alphabet is the holding company of Google and YouTube. Whether the, the new CEO there, Sundai Pichai, can be questioned on a privacy lawsuit about whether or not Google is watching everything we do and think on the internet. Um, Meanwhile, there are some companies that are actually benefiting from new internet rules. This New York Times piece from a couple of days ago features a new company called OneTrust, which is about trust and the internet and privacy and one of the core uh, philosophical issues surrounding the need for privacy. Of course, One can't talk about privacy these days without mentioning Facebook, uh, who's who's on everyone's bad boy list for not just 2021, but 2022, 2023, and 2020. According to The Guardian, the Facebook had a very bad year. They always seem to have very bad years, yet it doesn't seem to make much difference in terms of their bottom line. They remain one of the most profitable companies in the world. As the journal reveals today, Facebook has effectively pushed back on all our concerns about privacy and surveillance. Um, As Mark Zuckerberg has mastered, you stem the links, you spin the politics, you don't say sorry, you continue to watch us and you continue to make a profit. Um, And even though, as the Post reveals, that Americans widely distrust Facebook and TikTok and Instagram, Facebook, of course, owns Instagram, perhaps the three dominant social media companies which spend their time watching us and making money out of that data. We're still on those platforms. On the other hand, there is some good news. Um, The privacy-focused search engine DuckDuckGo, some of you may use it, grew by 46% in 2021. I'm not sure how meaningful that 46% is and whether any of you are using DuckDuckGo, but it's definitely in some ways encouraging news. Why does then privacy matter? 
And that is the subject, not just of our conversation today, but of a new book by one of the world's leading authorities on privacy, Neil Richards, who teaches at Washington University in St. Louis, and is joining us from his home office uh, in St. Louis, where he has revealed his guest bed. Neil, what are you giving <laughs> up all your most personal secrets on the internet for? Well, we did do a good tidy up before uh, I, I decided to, to stream from, from my office. What about that old uh, Eric Schmidt remark when he said, um, uh, telling people when we talk about privacy, he says, uh, well, if you're if you're worried about internet privacy, behave yourself. I've got nothing to be ashamed of. Do most of us have something that we want to hide, Neil? And should we want to have something that we want to hide? We, we all have things to hide. Um, but I think asking the question that way, uh, as as Eric Schmidt did, um, misstates what an issue, right? So, so at the beginning... And just to remind people, yeah. sorry to jump in here, Neil, some people won't know Eric Schmidt was the CEO of Google, then the executive chairman. Now he's just a, a horribly rich multi-billionaire who tells the world what he thinks. Yeah, he also once said that Google's policy was to get right up to the creepy line and not cross it. Um, we, I think thinking about privacy in terms of whether or not we have something to hide is, is in some respects the wrong question. Now, first of all, we all have things that we want to hide. Um, I, I noticed we're both wearing clothes today. I mean, I suppose in yeah. the age of Zoom, I normally don't, Neil, but well, you know, in the age of Zoom, who, knows what, who knows what's going on in the lower half of our bodies. But, um, <laughs> the, um, you know, the, the, the problem with, with nothing to hide, right? We, we all are sensitive. Most of us are sensitive about our naked bodies, about our sexual behaviors, about our innermost thoughts, about our excretory activities. Or lack of activities. I, I suppose. Um, but but everyone needs privacy at one time or another. And that need for privacy is legitimate. Second, focusing on privacy as nothing to hide, putting to one side the fact that it actually was originally coined by Goebbels, like an, a literal Nazi. Um, thinking about privacy in terms of nothing to hide misunderstands why privacy matters. Privacy isn't about hiding our dark secrets. Privacy matters because information is power and human information confers power over human beings. And, and third, thinking about nothing to hide, it focuses so narrowly upon privacy as an individual matter, that, that all that matters is, is my own decisions with respect to my privacy, rather than focusing on what it really is, which is a social value. We are all richer from living in a society where other people, as well as ourselves, have access to privacy, whether it's to, to figure out who they are, whether it's to, to generate new political ideas or, or, or works of art or literature, um, or, or whether it's to be protected as, as citizens or as consumers. That's why privacy matters. It's it's about information and power rather than th this idea that that we're hiding naughty things from other people that somehow inquiring minds have a right to know. I once wrote a book, Neil, many years ago, suggesting that privacy, particularly online privacy, but all kinds of privacy was the core feature of modernity, our ability to lose ourselves, to avoid the camera, to a to, to avoid any kind of surveillance culturally, socially, politically. Do you think there's some truth to that in terms of our shift from 
village society to the the society of the city. And it's a rather uh, vulgar shift. It's more complicated than that. But as we went from what sociologists call traditional to modern society, is privacy the core benefit, do you think, of modernity? Well, it's, it's certainly very important that the ability to uh, to, to be, as the, as the sociologist Irving Goffman said, backstage, right? We, we all perform uh, various roles throughout our days, um, different aspects of, our, of ourselves as, as professionals and parents and friends and, and, and lovers and children and professors, in my, in my case. Um, it's important to have a... And, 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 and in a, 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 a multiple way, we don't have to be... We're all those things and we wear those hats simultaneously. Absolutely. We don't have to choose. I, I talk about this at length in, in chapter four of the book in response to Mark Zuckerberg's ridiculous assertion that we only have one authentic uh, identity. Uh, we're, we're, you know, Whitman said it, right? I contain multitudes. That's what it means to be human. And so I think privacy is fundamentally important to what it means to be human. And I think just as you mentioned the, 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 the move to, from villages to the city, right? The city of, of, of vibrance and eccentricity and difference and originality. Um, as we moved to the society of Zoom, right? Where we, and you, you joked about the, the, the bed over, the, um, over my shoulder. Um, and that but, only is for people actually watching this rather than listening. If you're just listening, you can imagine that bed um, just behind, um, just behind Neil's uh, left shoulder. And fortunately, there's no one in it. No, no, this is the guest bed. I mean, you're not mentioning the the impressive wall of books that is next to the bed, right? The, no, no, well, like, I got a one-track mind, Neil. <laughs> in in our Zoom society, right? When when we suddenly had to 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 learn to communicate to work um, to shop to, to live so many aspects of our lives entirely mediated by technology with the pandemic, these shifts were coming, but the pandemic accelerated them. The idea of some separation between these roles isn't just, you could talk about it as I did in grand terms of what it means to be human, but even at the most prosaic level, it's what enables us to function in a sustainable way in our society, to be able to, to, to have a bedroom, to be able to have an office, to be able to, to entertain, to socialize, to, to navigate the roles and relationships we play in our lives. That's what privacy is about, and that's why it's important. It lets us be human. Yeah, and I think your point about our, our Zoom society, we've all adapted to it, uh, sort of like uh, excusing the the duck, duck, go uh, pun, like water up a, ba a duck's back. Um, but two years ago, had we been told that we would all be essentially living on Zoom, many of us would have said, well, that's kind of creepy. I know you're not so crazy about that word or you're ambivalent about the word, does our ability, it seems to just naturally gravitate towards a Zoom world, does that suggest perhaps that privacy is overrated and that we're all actually quite comfortable sitting on cameras and revealing our guest beds and our, our books and our children and our wives? I, I think it was, a, it was a function of necessity. Um, and, and I think... It certainly shows another way that privacy is about power, which is that, you know, relatively successful academics like myself with home offices were better able to thrive 
than, mm. than than people who were trying to work, you know, three people at once, student, worker, um, graduate studio around a kitchen table, for, for, for example. That I think that's another way in which in which privacy is about power. And because it's about power, power in our society is unequally uh, distributed. Um, you mentioned creepiness, though, which I think is a is a tremendously important concept. People talk about new information practices they don't like as if they're creepy all the time. And in and I talk about this in the book, but but more generally, I think creepiness is not the right way to think about these problems. It's it's a really bad uh, measurement device, very bad metric for thinking about whether there's really a privacy problem. It's it's over inclusive. Lots of things that we we think are creepy turn out to be actually pretty good. Um, Google search being being one of them. Um, more fundamentally, it's under-inclusive. There are lots of things we don't notice that are threatening to us, like, like social scoring, like, like AI algorithms that are rating our, our employability or our insurability or admissibility to college or our dateability for, for dating algorithms. We don't see our scores. We don't know what's going on. So we don't appreciate it as creepiness. And if we're only looking for creepy things, we miss this tremendous world that is deliberately designed to operate under our radar. And finally, you mentioned us getting acculturated to Zoom. Creepiness is malleable. Um, I said a little while ago that, that Google's policy was to get right up to the creepy line and not cross it. Pr creepiness thresholds, privacy norms, they rest upon social expectations. And those social expectations can be manipulated and they can be nudged and they can be changed. Often that's an organic thing, but I think what we've seen is technology companies know, like when uh, Google released that awful Google Glass device a few years ago, Facebook's, I think, got working on spectacles as well. Um, they know they can manipulate and nudge our expectations in ways that don't serve us or our humanity or our, or our goals as citizens or consumers. They serve their bottom line. And, and that's not what we should be building the, the digital society around. They serve their bottom line. And of course, they have their ideologists, some who are perhaps fellow travelers intellectually, others who are paid by them. What do you make, Neil, of Silicon Valley? Maybe not so much now, but in the early Web 2.0 age, the, the, uh, the, the, the hysteria, the positive hysteria over Web 2.0, people like Jeff Jarvis, this fetishization of transparency, this fetishization of the village of openness. Is there something just simply ignorant about it, or are these people simply in the pay of companies like Facebook? So I, so I, I know Jeff. Um, I, I, I like him a lot. I think he's deep. Well, we all like him, but we always know, also know that he's almost ninety-nine percent wrong on everything he says. Right. I mean, J J Jeff is a is a tremendously privileged person, um, and I suppose he's he's largely boring. And and if he if he wants to to and he also gets has made quite a large amount of money by being the apostle of openness. Um, you know, we, we all need refuges. We, we all need... Well, that's uh, a nice defense, Neil, of, of Jeff. Uh, what, which one? The one you just made. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, he... People talk about the, the internet. People talk about uh, privacy being this outdated, dying... Um, value. It's actually because I kept having this conversation with Uber drivers that I ultimately decided to write this book. Um, privacy has been dying or dead or being people fretting about it for at least 130 years since Warren and Brandeis wrote 
the article the right to privacy in 1890 they were concerned. well actually probably since jeremy bentham um wrote about his panopticon more than 200 years ago so absolutely right and 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 that's the point which is that this notion of of the death of privacy is really the the way we struggle with coming to terms about changing informational norms um privacy though is much less about exposure and much more as i said before about power the reason companies want to learn things about you is so they can market to you better the reason governments put up cctv cameras or surveil our communications for signs of radicalism is to uh promote commerce to reduce crime to try and prevent terrorism the reason parents install baby monitors in their baby's rooms is to stop those those lovable but but reckless little human beings from killing themselves or injuring themselves the, the reason uh you know we used to find my friends when, when our kids started driving to make sure that they were uh that they were safe and, and didn't need help right surveillance happens because we want to influence human behavior and that's a much better way of thinking about privacy than whether it is creepiness whether it's creepy or whether we can control it whether it's this outdated value privacy is only an outdated value if you don't care about your identity you don't care about our democracy and you don't care about your rights as a consumer. Other than that, Jeff's right. <laughs> That's the best put down of Jeff Jobs I've heard. I am talking to Neil Richards, the author uh, of a very compelling new book, Why Privacy Matters. He's an authority, a professor of law at uh, 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 in St. Louis um, at uh, Washington University. Um, we're going to be back, uh, Neil, after a short break. I want to talk a little bit more, well, I want to drill down and talk about the uh, the internet, Web 2.0, and then Web 3.0, uh, and surveillance capitalism, and lots of other good stuff. So stay with us. We'll be back in about 30 seconds, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, 
there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with Neil Richards, the author of Why Privacy Matters, a new book about the importance of privacy. In that little break, I suggested I'm not a fan of Facebook. And the reason is because uh, I see Facebook, at least, as one of the key companies in what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. It was a, a surprise bestseller. I actually blurbed the book. It's a wonderful read. Um, and has been very influential over, I think, about the last three years since it's been out. She, theoretically at least, joins the dots and suggests that there's a systematic assault on our privacy in terms of uh, digital capitalism. Uh, Neil, do you buy Zuboff's argument? Are we living in times of surveillance capitalism? I do. I do. I, I've... I've read all 867 pages or, or whatever it is of, of the book. Um, and, I, and I've thought about it a lot. I, I think the important, let me say two things about it. One is the important thing to take about uh, her story is what started off as um, useful byproducts of information uh, spun off from transactions has been used to predict and increasingly to, to control consumer behavior. And second, that that threatens our our humanity. Now, now she's a business professor, not a lawyer. I think her her book is masterful. Well, I think she's a sociologist more than a business professor. But... Right, right. She, she sort of STS, and um, but she she was at Harvard Business School. Her her book is is very strong on critique. It's not as uh, is as helpful uh, in what we should do about it. But I think, like a lot of great polemical books, I, I think. It's well titled. I think surveillance capitalism is is a is a useful counter narrative to talk about, um, you know, what what the golden trumpets of Silicon Valley and Madison Avenue talk about in terms of innovation. Zuboff is I don't know if she's a Marxist, but she's certainly sort of a, a sociologist in that tradition. Um, do we need to be careful, though, Neil, in some ways of the libertarian defense of um, privacy. Uh, here on we have a, a screen of Glenn Greenwald, the hardcore libertarian journalist who in, 19, in 2014 um, did a popular TED speech, Why Privacy Matters. Can we go too far? Are some of these libertarians like Greenwald um, fanatics in their own sense? Well, I'm, I'm a I'm a moderate. Um, you know, I, I think the important thing to find is balance. I, I think we need to find a balance between um, the benefits of these marvelous digital technologies uh, and the undeniable threats to our to our humanity, to our to our economic rights, and, and to our political freedom. Um, I, I think we need to find a way in which companies can continue to make money. Um, but in which they're brought within the rule of law and they're they're held to account for their for their actions. Is that done through Neil? Are you embracing companies like DuckDuckGo, or are you more in the sort of the regulation GDPR camp? That really, when it comes to protecting privacy, um, we need government to help us out. So, how do you stand with the? the DuckDuckGo style entrepreneurial solution versus the GDPR one, or is that a false? Uh, no, no, I, I think option? it's, 
I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. You, you mentioned at the beginning um, that now is the time of the year that we think about getting serious about our privacy. And we have a, you know, there's lots of articles. Top yeah, it's like our weight and do. our fitness. Right. It's the three things we, we do new, new Year's resolutions about. We won't give away our data. We'll lose weight and we'll exercise more. And of course, all those things go away by about January 5th. Exactly. And, and why can't we lose weight? Because we live in an environment where we're, uh, we're, we're first we're locked indoors, but we're, we're, we're bombarded, we're, right? With, we're bombarded uh, with... by by convenience, by advertising. Um, you know the, the 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 structures in which we live limit our ability to 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 be the kind of people that we want to be. Um, Privacy is kind of like that too. I, I'm not saying that consumers should be entirely off the hook, right? Yes, use DuckDuckGo over Google. Um, neither company pays me. Um, but the, at the same time we saw during the pandemic, do you have a choice over what learning platform your child's elementary school uses and what the privacy policies of that are, you know, do, do you really have much of a choice between operating systems, um, or, uh, the, the, the privacy policy of your smart television? I think consumers should be encouraged to make good choices, but ultimately, we, in the United States at least, because Congress has for the last 50 years comprehensively failed to pass a comprehensive baseline privacy statute, the United States is the only advanced economy in the world without one. Even China's got one, for goodness sake. And so there's only so much we can do to protect our own privacy in the absence of regulation, just as there's only so much we could do in the absence of regulation in the industrial revolution to make sure that the meat we ate was not poisonous and the water we drank was was not impure um, what we need to have to, to in our particular instance right now is more regulation and better regulation because right now we have almost no regulation when it comes to what companies in the united states can do with respect to the collection the use of your data and the use of it to manipulate you now, what should we be worrying about more? The private surveillance that Shoshana Zuboff reveals in her surveillance capitalism or the kind of state surveillance that Edward Snowden revealed? Um, I've had Barton Gelman, uh, who along with, um, who, along with uh, Glenn Greenwood was one of the brave journalists revealing what Snowden uh, himself uh, leaked, um, what worries you more when it comes to privacy, the eyes of Google or the eyes of the U.S. state or the Chinese state? Well, the the good news in in my line of work is there's lots there's lots to worry about, so there's there's lots to do. I think they're both problems. I mean, I, I devote a chapter of the book to to each of them. L let me say that I am less concerned about our ability to bring the state within the rule of law than I am about our ability to bring corporations within the rule of law on privacy. And that's for a number of reasons. One is the role of money in politics. Um, two is we have a much deeper cultural sense of the problems that state surveillance provides and the problems that state power provides, right? Provides, right? Going back to, to, to King John and the Barons at Runnymede in 1215, 800 years ago, we have 1984, we have the Snowden revelations, we, we have Minority Report, right? There's lots, the panopticon, there's all these cultural 
intuitions and legal tools and practices for bringing the government within the rule of law on surveillance. But when it comes to the power of Google, when it comes to the power of, of private corporations, we lack the same cultural intuitions, even though uh, the, their ability to manipulate us is, is, is just as great, even though um, the, the data collection by private entities can easily be given or sold to the, to the government entities we we're yeah, so and that happened, of course, with uh, Cambridge Analytica uh, in 2018. Um, 50 million Facebook profiles were harvested. That's a curious word that the Guardian uses for Cambridge Analytica. And I noted today um, that uh, there's still a, an investor class action against uh, Facebook's Cambridge Analytica breach. Uh, you're a professor of law, Neil. Is the solution in the law courts? Do consumers need to continually take out class action lawsuits against companies like Facebook and Google? Can we bankrupt them in, or can we force them with the threat of bankruptcy into leaving our data alone? Well, class actions are one of the tools the law can use to deal with these problems. Um, I, I think perhaps we, you know, class actions have their limitations. Very often they, you know, the, to the extent they produce fines, much of the money goes to the lawyers rather than to individual consumers. And particularly for, for injuries like uh, data collection or economic manipulation, um, the individual harms that individual consumers suffer can be, can be small and hard to measure, um, even though the benefits of those, of those harms can be aggregated in some of the greatest fortunes the, the world has ever seen. So I think the reason we see so many class action lawsuits in the United States is we don't have the equivalent of a of a European privacy agency. We, we have the the Federal Trade Commission. Um, so we need uh, so we need a Margaret Vestager. We need a GDPR in the U.S. Well, I think we need a GDPR in the U.S. or something like it um, in order to continue to do business with Europe. Uh, we we need one to establish baseline rules of the road. The problem with with the regulatory landscape right now is the the Federal Trade Commission has become the de facto privacy regulator, and they've done a great job with the limited tools they have. The problem is the basic tools they have, the prohibition on unfair and deceptive trade practices, date back to 1914 rather than 2014. Um, they're using in industrial age tools to try to deal with information age problems, and and I have enormous admiration. For the for the commissioners and the staff at the Federal Trade Commission, um, but they need better tools and, and more funding. There was actually a line item in them, a fairly significant one, in the in the Build Back Better bill. So if, if that gets passed, they'll have more ability to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's unlikely it's going to get it's passed. And, and meanwhile, Silicon Valley is on to the next big thing, um, which is what we're calling out here, Web three. There was an interesting piece about Jack Dorsey, who used to run Twitter, now runs, well, was running Square, which is now known as Block, uh, in, in the unlikely revolutionaries who want to reboot the internet, redistribute power. But I saw another headline today uh, in Forbes about how Facebook and Google will shun privacy in Web3. No one quite knows what Web3 means, but are you fearful that these new peer-to-peer -peer technologies the blockchain technologies, Bitcoin, fintech, all this will actually be bad news for privacy, Neil? Well, let me also say that I'm not always in favor of privacy, right? That that my book makes the argument 
that privacy is important, that it matters, that it will continue to be important in the future, even on the occasion of its uh, supposed or alleged death. Um, but privacy can also shield human trafficking and, and uh, trafficking in drugs. It can shield domestic abuse. It can shield political corruption. So, so I am much less in the book calling for more privacy across the board than a more nuanced privacy, than a, than a, a recommitment to information rules that we need to promote our, our ability to develop our identities as humans, our, our freedom as citizens, and our uh, protection as consumers. When it comes to, so when it comes to things like uh, taking tr uh, currencies away from governments, um, I, I do start to get a little bit nervous, but what really makes me nervous, you're exactly right, Web3 is whatever the person talking about wants it to be when they're talking. But this idea of the of the metaverse that that uh, Mark Zuckerberg has has suddenly decided is you know uh, I guess he's only finally read uh, uh, Neil Stevenson and and uh, yeah, Neil was actually on the show uh, last month. Yeah, I, I, I saw it. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, the the problem with the metaverse from a privacy perspective and the reason Facebook wants to do it is right now it's quite easy for companies to collect information about you when you use the internet but you're still most of the time in the physical world but in the metaverse everything you do is mediated by the technology and so they don't need to you know th there will be no privacy in the metaverse because facebook will, will will no longer be a powerful corporation within that realm they will be god um and so they will be able to collect vastly greater amounts of now that's creepy neon i don't like that that word but that is creepy and there are newer we're talking about uh, meta as basically a, a machine learning company as an ai company i know you're pretty nervous about some new technologies as one uh company new york times calls them the secretive company that might end privacy as we know it they are Clearview.ai, uh, gain intelligence, disrupt crime, as their website says. You're rather nervous about them and companies like that, aren't you? I am. Clearview AI is a company that has trained its uh, facial recognition algorithms on the open web and, and promises a technology that can identify anybody based upon a photograph. Um, facial recognition technology is, is one of those examples um, that, again, it might, we might think of it as creepy but we need to think about it as powerful. Um, they are selling this technology to, uh, to law enforcement. They're selling it to ICE um, for, for identification of undocumented people. Um, they offer, um, in good marketing mode, they offer a justification that this is to fight human trafficking, this is to protect children, um, this is to prevent crime. But, but this is a tremendously powerful Orwellian technology um, that is not being developed in conversation with with the public. In fact, they've argued they've, they've hired first amendment, famous First Amendment lawyer Floyd Abrams. I believe he's on their board um, to argue they have a First Amendment right to to create this this brutal technology. Um, right. You, you mentioned Orwellian. Of course, Orwell warned about this kind of surveillance society in 1984, where there was camera, ubiquitous cameras watching everything we've done. I, I, I mentioned uh, Jeremy Bentham earlier. 
the father of the panopticon. He was sympathetic in some ways to a surveillance society. Uh, Bentham was also the founder of utilitarian theory, which is essentially, I, I think, a nudge theory, a, 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 a government society, a, a political philosophy that, 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 that minimizes pain and benefits happiness. Um, is there a bigger picture here in terms of moving away from nudge technologies, probably, or nudge philosophies from behavioral economics uh, that, that, that borrow from Bentham's utilitarianism, particularly um, in our COVID-ridden, COVID-obsessed world? Well, I, th th there's a lot in that question, right? Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to talk about Bentham, uh, but but let me say one thing about Bentham and then one thing about nudging. The thing about Bentham that I wanted to to point out is, I mean, Bentham was also a, a, a radical feminist, right? That but he he designed. Oh, you mean women had as much right to be watched as men? <laughs> Perhaps, but but Bentham's Panopticon is a design for a prison. It's not a design for society as a whole. Well, I, actually, that's wrong, Neil. I mean, it was a design not for for, uh, for schools. I mean, he saw it in ubiquitous terms, and he actually went to Russia to work for Catherine the Great to build these schools and hospitals and prisons there. So I think it it went beyond just a prison. Well, we 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 could we could have a, a, a okay, well, debate another podcast about Bentham. But let me say about nudging, right? That that we have these technologies that can be used to influence us. Um, if you can control, right, so this is Sunstein and Thaler popularized it. If you can control the choice architecture, you can control the outcome for many people of how they make decisions. And on the internet, in digital environments, using digital devices, much less the metaverse, everything is designed, everything is constructed. And the power of the corporation, the entity, to get us to do what they want, to, to get us to dance to their tune by designing the interfaces is unparalleled. So this is, let's say you want to, one wants to delete a Facebook account, right? There's gonna be two buttons. The big one is gonna say, no, no, I don't want to destroy my relationships with people. And then the the smaller one, yeah. yes, yes, let me just, let me destroy my relationships. And then what, what happens, you push that button. Are you sure? Your friends will be sad to see you go. So the, yeah, the they already the, do that. Even when you when you get off a mailing list, they say, "Are you sure?" These are nudge technologies, right? This is this is choice architecture that structures your decision making and takes advantage of known cognitive biases, like like the endowment effect and the status quo bias that behavioral scientists have been documenting for the last couple of decades. Um, when you I talk about this in the book, when you marry the power of behavioral science with the power of data science, not just how to influence the average human, but to, to, to identify known biases and likes and vulnerabilities in individual human beings, that enables a level of, of manipulation and control, whether we're talking about precisely targeted electoral misinformation, like in Cambridge Analytica, uh, or precisely targeted advertising in the run-up to Christmas. Um, the technology is the same. The tools are the same. Um, and data is what enables it. Um, and of course, you put that power in the hands of a, an authoritarian government, like in China, clearly, unambiguously, almost proudly authoritarian government in China's surveillance state. We had the German 
journalist Kai Strittmatter on the show a couple of years ago has written a book about China's emerging surveillance state. Uh, last month, they also had the Hungarian sociologist Dorot Gever on the show warning us about Viktor Orban's neo-authoritarianism, anti-democratic initiatives in Hungary. Same is true in the Philippines, in Turkey, in Egypt, and so on, in Russia, perhaps even in the US with Trump. Should we be fearful about democracy when it comes to why privacy matters? And that's why we need to protect um, uh, our, our rights on and offline, particularly online? Yes, yes. Um, what I, I've said this a number of times, but privacy is about power. Information about people provides power about them. I think it's it's no accident that, that the Cambridge Analytica company intervened in two key elections in 2016. They were on the side of Leave in the Brexit referendum. They were on the side of Trump in the presidential election. Now, now, progressives can use informational power too. But if we're concerned about oppressive authoritarian regimes, one thing authoritarians are good at is identifying power and information provides that power. And our new technologies running on our human information enable that at a level, whether it is political misinformation, whether it is the use of data science, to draw finely crafted, politically gerrymandered electoral districts, or whether it's the, the use of personalized psychographic profiles like in Cambridge Analytica to deliver finely targeted uh, political ads to, to prey on our vulnerabilities. Um, this is power. Um, information is power. And, and what do we do in democratic societies when we see power imbalances and vulnerabilities and manipulation? We regulate, we create checks and balances and um, and restrictions upon what you can and cannot do. You mentioned libertarians, libertarianism before, unchecked, egotistical libertarianism. Um, one of the a la, things- that, A la Glenn Greenwald. Well, uh, certainly a la Clearview AI. One of the things they are arguing, as I said before, is that they have a libertarian First Amendment right to create this dangerous technology of Orwellian oppression, which sort of turns the First Amendment, turns um, its justifications entirely on its head. Uh, the, the reason we have free expression is so that we can dissent, not so that we can be rounded up uncontrolled. Um, and so I actually worry as much about the, the, the streak of informational libertarianism, um, sort of boneheaded, informational libertarianism that's running through our legal system right now that you're seeing uh, increasingly among uh, conservative judges um, that I don't think we we should decide that the, the future of the republic depends upon recognizing the right to process data as a First Amendment right. In fact, the opposite is likely to be true. If we, if we don't bring these technologies under control, um, if we enable the development and the deployment of these information-based surveillance power technologies, um, then, I, then I do fear for uh, the continued future of democracy. Yes, and if you do care about the future of democracy and all these very complicated issues, you need to read uh, Neil, uh, Neil Richards' new book, Why Privacy Matters. He's erudite. He's an expert on law and, and, and privacy, but he's written this book in a very coherent accessible way. Congratulations, Neil, on the book. Thank you for a wonderfully 
far-ranging, interesting conversation on privacy. Thanks for revealing your guest bedroom in your St. Louis house. Uh, fortunately, there's no one in that bed at the moment. Uh, as we come to the new year, in addition to your new book, um, Why Privacy Matters, what else should people be reading? Oh, so there's there's so many books in so little time. Uh, I would say in my field, I really enjoyed Kate Crawford's Atlas of AI, mm. uh, which is a sort of wide-ranging look at AI as an ideology, the way uh, Web3 is sort of an, an ideology. Very well written, very accessible. Uh, Ari Waldman, my colleague at North Northeastern University Law School, wrote a great book about companies like OneTrust. Um, it's called Industry Unbound. Uh, it's a sociological expose of compliance structures, but it's also quite readable. Um, and personally, right now, I'm I'm reading the Witcher novels because I enjoyed the TV show. Um, you know, we're not all uh, living in our ivory towers and, uh, you know, we're, we're engaging with culture as well. And I think it's important, actually, as we think about technology to continue to embrace uh, literature, both both great literature and, and, and science fiction and fantasy, because uh, the information revolution is a challenge to our imaginations. And I think we need imaginative uh, uh, humanistic solutions to these problems and, and good books can can help stimulate those conversations. Good book certainly can. One good book to stimulate conversation is Neil Richards' new book, Why Privacy Matters. Neil, happy new year. Best of luck with your 2022 resolution to keep off the internet. Maybe that'll last a week. Uh, and perhaps we'll talk to you again in 2022 about why privacy matters and how to protect ourselves and our democracy online. Thank you so much. My resolution is to lobby for better privacy rules. Uh, thank you for a great conversation and for having me on the show. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have a, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.